One of the things that I have to look forward to uh, this year, at the end of the year, coming up on New Year's Eve, is that I'm performing, I'm officiating at a wedding uh, up in Tacoma, Washington. And so Twyla and I are looking forward to traveling up there and being able to do that for, for uh, Shiloh Slaker, uh, one of the gals that attended here, and we're just gonna enjoy that. But it caused me to start thinking a little bit this week, uh, as that's drawing near, uh, about weddings. And I, I started uh, going back through and looking at my records a little bit because I was kind of wondering, well, how many weddings have I done uh, since I've been in ministry? And it's somewhere north of 75 weddings uh, that I've done. Uh, and so plus this one, plus uh, I'll be doing two more in 2024. Uh, three more in 2024, as a matter of fact. And uh, so, you know, weddings are always a fun thing. There's so much that goes into them. But I was thinking specifically this week uh, uh, with the, the idea of, of the vows and the pledges. And uh, back when Twyla and I got married, it seemed like the thing to do was that, that everybody was writing their own vows. And so you would write something and hope it didn't sound stupid and, you know, share it with your, your spouse and, uh, or your, your intended there before you got married. Uh, and then we went through this phase where, where people kind of went back to the more traditional, the written out things. You know, I would hear brides and grooms say, no, we just want to do the, the traditional. We just want to do something that's already down. Just tell us what to say and, and, and we'll say it. And so they would do that. And now we've kind of come, this pendulum swinging back and I get about half and half. Sometimes they'll, they'll want to do the traditional vows, you know, I promise to love you in sickness and in health, uh, richer or poorer, you know, good times or bad uh, until death do we part or, or something to that effect. And, and couples w- would get up and share these. And, and so I was thinking about that and, and some of the vows that I've heard lately though, where people have written them and, and they're kind of interesting and kind of unique. Well, I ran across then this list of, of vows that were unusual. It was a list of unusual vows. And some of them even caught me by surprise. I thought I'd share a couple with you. Uh, the first one I, I saw was, I promise to be your co-pilot, your navigator, and to bring snacks on our road trip through life. And I thought, oh, that's kind of clever and cute, you know. Uh, Another one was, I promise not to watch the next episode without you or at least pretend that I didn't. Uh, Anybody who's been married a while knows what that one's about, okay. Uh, This one here, I promise to love you in our Ikea moments, be it during the buying or the assembling of furniture procured therein. So then then this one was just weird and kind of gross, but... (laughs) <laughs> now you're wondering, what could they do? They said, I vow to stand by your side when the zombie apocalypse comes. And should you be turned into one, I promise to let you bite me so I too can be one and stay by your side forever. <laughs> As opposed to then this, this last one, I take you to be my lawfully wedded husband in sickness and in health until death do we part or you turn into a zombie because then we're gonna have to start seeing other people. <laughs> But, you know, I, I, I think about those vows and I think about as, as couples have stood and I've watched them, they, they come up and they stand in front of me and sometimes I can, I can see in their eyes or in their posture how they're doing things that, that these vows that they're sharing uh, run deep. You know, they really mean what they're saying. They speak to, especially when you, I think of even the, the traditional vows of, of I promise to love you in sickness and health, poverty and wealth, good times and, and bad, uh, as long as we both shall live. And that vow itself speaks to a love that is more than just a feeling. 
It speaks to a love that's a decision and a commitment that says even when things are hard, even when it gets tough, uh, no matter what it is, and, and things can get tough sometimes. There's gonna be those moments, and any of you who are married know those moments when you look at that person and you say to them, you know, I don't like you very much right now, but I still love you. You know, and, and so it, it speaks to that kind of a, a commitment that we make uh, to that other person, it, and, and it's powerful. And yet, some people, those words just roll out of them, and, and then when things get tough, they you know they forget about it. They, they go the other way. Uh, they walk away from those things. And the reason I bring all this up this morning is because uh, the the title of the sermon is the promise of love. And when we make those vows, we are, we are making a promise of love. And we're not just gonna be talking only about marriage today, but it's kind of a kickoff because what we see in scripture is that God very often uses marriage as a reflection uh, of his love for us and uses an example. We can go to the prophetic book of Hosea uh, where God tells Hosea to go out and marry a prostitute. And then she runs away and Hosea has to go get her and bring her back a couple times. And God says then, this is what my relationship with you, Israel, is like. I am the husband and you are the one that keeps running away and you go after other idols and gods and prostitute yourselves. And even though you do, I love you so much that I'm gonna keep coming after you. I'm gonna keep wanting you that I still am committed to you. And so we see through scripture then this, this whole idea and, and this morning as we think about the promise of love to understand who God is in the midst of, of this, this uh, um, Advent season in terms of, of his love. In fact, that, that love is uh, his motivation for why he sent Jesus to be born uh, among us. It was a decision he made out of great love. The Apostle John, who incidentally refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Isn't that kind of funny? He doesn't, in his gospel, he doesn't name himself, but when he comes into the picture, he always says, says the disciple whom Jesus loved. Uh, you know, that's, there's some deep thinking that's going on there on John's part that he would want to use uh, that name for himself. But he has something to say in one of his, his small letters at the end of our Bible in 1 John 4, he, he talks a lot about, about loving one another and that sort of thing. And he has this to say to us in uh, chapter four, verses seven through 12. He says, dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. The baby in the manger, Advent. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This baby grew up to go to the cross for us. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. So using this passage kind of as the background for us, I want us to explore the promise of God to love us. What is it that God has done and what is it he continues to do? And what is it he will do even into the future? And how does that impact us? What should be our response to this kind of love uh, that God has shown us? So I'm gonna start first with, with this statement, and that is God 
God's promise to send Jesus was a promise of love, okay? And we need to, to understand that. And it's deeper than just this, those words that, that we would utter. Uh, as we've done in the last couple of, of weeks when we talked about hope and, and peace and we went back to Genesis. So again, when we talk about God's promise of love, we can go all the way back to the beginning. We can go all the way back to Genesis and see how God has worked there. Uh, that it was out of love that God created in the first place. And it's kind of interesting. Again, even as, as, as we're told that in the beginning, God, those are the first words we see in Genesis, in the beginning, God. That God is, is the one who exists and who is eternal. And as John told us in the passage we read, God is love, the very heart of his being. You know, uh, the description that probably captures him with the most power is that God is love. It is the motivation between, in the midst of all he does. And so when we go there, we see, even in Genesis 1, that God created everything out of love. In fact, the evidences for that is we see that he created and named it good. You know, creates each thing, and it was good. He didn't, he didn't just create you know, some, some willy-nilly thing, experiment or whatever, and said, oh, I wonder what this will be, or whatever. He thought with intent and purpose and out of love, he created everything that we see uh, on our planet uh, today. Second, his love is seen in his desire to meet the needs of the people he created. From creating Adam and Eve for each other as two parts of the image of God to placing them in the Garden of Eden uh, for their care and that sort of thing. And, And then we see even more evidence that he desired to spend time with them. He walked with them in the garden. It wasn't like the deists of old who who believed that God created the world and then he just stepped back and watched it spin to see what would happen. You know, okay, I created these people. Now I'm just gonna step back and, no, God is intimately involved with us, okay? Just as he walked with Adam and Eve in the garden, so he wants to continue to walk with us. And, And even after Adam and Eve Uh, sin, even after they disobeyed, even after because of what they had done, the world was broken. God didn't just cut them loose and say, well, you're on your own. You know, in fact, we're told that even though they couldn't stay in the garden any longer, that God cared for them. He made clothing for them. The first clothing that people wore, God made. God himself made. And we follow as we, as we follow along and we see in Genesis that he desired to have a relationship with them. And, and he interacts not just with Adam and Eve, but with Cain and Abel and, and with their descendants as they come, that, that God wants an intimate, loving relationship with these people, these people uh, who have turned their backs on him. And he calls them back and he wants to be involved uh, in their lives. And so God has this plan which he put in place even before he created. Evidently, God being an all-knowing God knew the risks of creating beings with free will. He understood before he created what it could cost him. And so Paul says in Ephesians 1, these words, for he, God, chose us in him, in Jesus, before the creation of the world. He had this plan in mind. Peter says something similar. He says, he, Jesus, was taken or was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Both of these passages are essentially saying the same thing, that God has a plan in place to send Jesus even before he created the world. A plan 
that turned into a promise that when people disobeyed God and the world was broken. And so from Genesis, and, and we talked about this when we talked about hope, you know, right at the beginning in, in chapter three when, when people fell and he's talking to the serpent and he makes that statement uh, that in there that, that says, he, Jesus, will crush your Satan's head and you, Satan, will strike his Jesus' heel. That that was a, a promise of love. You know, we talked about it being a promise of hope, but, but what motivated that? It was God's love uh, for us. And so we can progress on through uh, the Bible. You know, in Genesis, we see um, these little pieces uh, uh, of hope that are given, but really statements of love that God, when he chooses Abraham, why does he do that? It's, it's out of love. And because he's putting in motion his plan of love that's going to come to fruition hundreds of years later. But he doesn't want people to despair, and so he continues to make these promises of love to them. And we can walk our way through the Old Testament and see prophecy after prophecy about the coming Messiah, the one who is going to come, who's going to make all things right. And it's amazing to see even the detail of what we see in terms of where he was to be born in Bethlehem. Of, of what he would be like, of how he would go to the cross, of how they would nail him, specifically says nail him to a cross, how the soldiers would even uh, throw uh, uh, lots for his clothing is all described hundreds of years before it, it happened. Now, it's a, it's a stunning thing to think about it. And, and all these books we go through, we, we see examples in Genesis, Exodus, Samuel, the Psalms, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Micah, Zechariah, Malachi, all of the, and so many more I could name. All of these prophecies are really prophecies of love, promises of love to come for the awaited Messiah whom God would bring. Which brings us then to a second thought, and that is this, God sent Jesus to live among us as an act of love, okay? Uh, John, in our beginning passage, says this in verses nine and 10, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And I think about that and I think how stunning it is that God's plan uh, chose to send his son, which, which again, remember, and this kind of twists with our mind a little bit, that Jesus is God incarnate. You know, Jesus is God, while at the same time being called the son of God. Uh, I had a professor once who said, well, you know, we think, well, this seems kind of complicated, but, but this is the easiest way God had to try and, and help us and show us what he is like and what he is doing. So he sends, he sends Jesus, but he sends him not as this God incarnate who comes with this power to, to beat up the world. You know, that's, that's kind of what the, you know, the, the, the Greeks and the Romans had this idea of their gods. And so their gods would sometimes take on human form and come down to the world. But what they did was then was that they used their power to blast somebody or to change somebody or to do something. And, and, and they were always doing things that, that were less than, than honorable. 
and that sort of thing. And God didn't do any of that. He didn't announce himself. Uh, he announced himself, but he didn't announce himself in a way that would say, uh, you know, here he is, you know, I, I am God, bow before me. Instead, he made himself, he could have done that, but he made himself vulnerable. A child, a newborn baby, placed in a manger because there was no room for them. There was no room in the inn for them to stay, and so they're in this stable. You know, we think about that, and, and I know that, that poets and songwriters and, and theologians have pondered through the years that incredible reality that the Son of God would come with such humble beginnings, and so uh, he, he was vulnerable. Uh, you know, and, and we think about that. Um, I, I just love the passage in Luke. While they were... While we were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And we follow that Christmas story even further. We go to Matthew two years later, and we read this. On coming to the house, these magi, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And we think... Well, things are looking up for Jesus, you know. Now some of the wealth that he deserves is coming his way, but we keep reading, and, and having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up and took the child with his mother during the night and left for Egypt again vulnerable. The entire world against him. Here he is. He's not, you know, just two years old and already a powerful king wants him dead and chases him out of the country, basically. This is how he came into the world. In fact, Paul tells us in Philippians 2, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. He made himself vulnerable, Paul is saying. Why would he do this? Because he loves us. You say, oh, he loves us. He loves us that much? Yes, he does. As John says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. So this Advent season and what kind of powers the Advent season for us is that we celebrate something that's already occurred, that has already happened about... Almost 2,000 years ago, God entered our world as one of us, vulnerable, ready to give his life just to save us. And that's what he did. He demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It was all out of love. And now God's promise of love still goes on. And the next thought we have is that God continues the promise of love to a lost and a lonely world. Uh, the picture I have of this is the story of the prodigal son. 
You know, and again, the, the, in that story, we often think of the younger son who, who we are gonna talk about, but, but in truth, there were two sons and both of them were prodigals. And, and in fact, kind of the context and point of that, that story that Jesus tells is that, that the Pharisees and teachers of the law were complaining that he was hanging around with sinners and, and, and they said, this isn't right. And so he tells this story and it's pointed at them because they're the older brother who are unaccepting of those who need God's love. But he tells this story of this younger son who comes and he asks for his inheritance and he, he takes it with him. And, and in fact, the hurt that he placed in his father because the inheritance was never given uh, until uh, the father had passed away. So by asking for it, he's basically saying, Father, I wish you were dead. And he takes that inheritance, he goes into a far off country, and he squanders it all, finds himself, finds himself starving to death, comes to his senses and realizes that his servants live better than he's living. And so he swallows his pride and decides that he's gonna go home and he practices his little speech of what he's gonna say. And, and he comes down the driveway toward the house. And, and, and what does he see? Is his dad standing there with a shotgun? You know, is his dad there saying, boy, you are gonna get the tongue lashing of your life. Don't expect anything from me. Does he give his little speech and have the dad say, well, hire you as a servant? Yeah, I'll think about it, but you know, you hurt me pretty bad. No, none of that happens. Instead, as he's walking up, and I can just picture him running and rehearsing, and saying, uh, I'm gonna say, Father, I've sinned against you and against heaven. I'm not worthy to be your son. Uh, please make me one of your servants. You know, and he's running it through his brain. And his dad comes down, and he goes, my boy. And he runs up, and he throws his arms around him. He says, quick, brings some clean clothes for him. You know, put a ring on his finger, shoes on his feet. Let's have a party. Kill the fatted calf. It's gonna be awesome. My son who was lost is found. We're gonna celebrate. And I think about that and I think that then is the ongoing story of now in terms of this promise of love. That has been true for the last 2,000 years and continues to be true. That God stands with his arms wide open waiting for us to come. And maybe you're here today and you've, you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You've not stepped into the embrace of this Father who, who is calling you. Know that it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how bad you think you are. He stands with his arms open. He is the loving Father. His name is love. And he wants you to come so that he can bring you home, make you clean, make you new, that you might know his love. Again, John says in John 1, 10 through 12, at the beginning of his gospel, that he, Jesus, was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him and most of it still does not today. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And if it ended there, it'd be such a sad story, <laughs> but it's not. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The first day that when the church began, the Holy Spirit came down and it landed upon the disciples who were there and they began to speak. 
and they were speaking in different languages and people understood from, because they were there, you know, from all around the Roman Empire. And they were wondering how they heard in their own language this story of Jesus that was being spoken of. And, and some of them said, well, these guys are drunk. And Peter says, no, we're not. He goes, this is not even the time for drinking, he says. Uh, and he says, uh, but listen, let me tell you about what we're talking about here. And he begins to preach. You know, and he goes on and, and we read then, as he concludes, he says, therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I love this last line. The promise is for you. This promise of love. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Do you see the scope of this promise? I mean, he, he's talking about for you and your children. He's, he's talking about a promise that spans time. I don't think he's just talking about their immediate children that they have. He's saying for any born to you, for all those who will come after you, this promise is for everyone through time. It's a look down the halls of time to us that we might receive that promise. And, and, and geography doesn't start it. It's everyone in the world to all who are far off whether it's geographically or, or spiritually even, this promise of love that he brings to us. This brings us then to the part that involves us. With all of this in mind then, God sends us, those of us who have received his son, those of us who have embraced the promise, he sends us as his ambassadors of love. Again, this takes us back to our original passage in 1 John. You know, as we read that, you'll notice that the part in the middle that tells us that God is love, and this is how God showed his love to us, that he sent his son and all of that sort of thing, is sandwiched between two parts that talk to us about who we should be because of his love. And I'd like to read that again and have us pay attention to the first part and the ending. So he says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God, Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his son, his one and only son, into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Atoning means bringing us together. We and God are brought back together again. We are brought back together with each other when we walk in his love. So he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And then he ends with, dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us. You hear what he's saying with that? No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God is seen in us. So where are people gonna see God? In us, as we love. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. So again, just to, to summarize it, John is saying several things about God's love at work within us. 
The way that we love others is the evidence that shows people that we belong to God and know him, okay? We should love others as a response to how God has loved us. He sent Jesus to die for us. Are we willing to die for others? You know, it was Jesus who said, take up your cross daily and follow me. That's kind of interesting. I, I, I think that maybe a few people scratched their heads uh, when he said that because, you know, if he had said, take up your cross and left it there, then they'd have been wondering, well, crumb, is he expecting us to physically die? Now, especially now when we're, we're this side of the cross, we know what Jesus was talking specifically. He was going to the cross. And so, yes, there may be a, a, you know, a piece in that or, or, or a meaning that's there that's very true that we might be called to give up our lives for someone. But he says, take up your cross daily. And I think he's talking about the little sacrifices, the little deaths that we might live each day as, as we give up our will that we might show love to someone who's in need. What am I willing to give up to show God's love uh, to someone else? And then he says, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and is seen in us. We are, you, someone said, you may be the, the, the only Jesus someone ever sees. That's a heavy burden, I, I feel that quite often. To think, if they're looking at me to try and see what God is like, they're looking at me to try and see who Jesus is. Man, what a, what a, a pale reflection I am sometimes. You know, a, a cracked pot, so to speak. I didn't say crack pot, I said a cracked pot. <laughs> it's not the same thing. But that's what we're called to. And then God's love is made complete when we love others because people are the targets of his love and we are his ambassadors sharing his love with others. So as we draw nearer to Christmas, uh, my prayer is that we would reflect upon the promise of his love. It was a love promised from of old. It's not just a new thing. It was a love confirmed by Jesus becoming one of us and dying for us. It's a love that continues to be offered to all who will receive that love. And it is a love that calls us to love others as God loves us. My prayer is that as we love, we will see coming into being what Jesus said when he taught you know, his disciples to pray. Remember he said, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, what? On earth as it is in heaven. That we would see heaven on earth. That heaven would come down and be seen among us, that people would look at us, Harrisburg Christian Church, and say, there's a piece of heaven. There's where people love each other. There's where people love those in our community and in the world. I believe that's what God wants from us and wants for us. May we see heaven come down as we love the way he loved. Let's pray. Father, I pray that, again, by your spirit, Lord, you would touch us anew, uh, bring alive, even in this Christmas season, the reality of, of the love that you showed so long ago in sending your son Jesus as a baby. 
Um, but more than that, Father, a baby not just born in a manger, but born under the shadow of the cross, uh, a love that compelled you to do uh, such a huge thing. And I know, Lord, that it just broke your heart, and yet your love is greater than your broken heart for us. And so, Father, may we follow your example and love those around us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.